Desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 4, Unexplained Aerial Phenomena. Our featured story is from Steve Wigenstein, from his collection of short stories called Scattered Lights. The story you're going to hear from the collection is set partly in his past. He remembers this summer, when he was in high school, of widely reported UFO sightings in a small community near where he grew up. And he sets the story there. It's a great jumping off point. But first, I want you to listen to what he has to say about darkness and how it unlocks your voice. I also love his thoughts on longing and belonging from his deeply rooted sense of home. I grew up in South Central, Southeast Missouri, in what's you know generally thought of as the Eastern Ozarks. Uh, my parents uh, were from there. They grew up on adjoining farms, and their parents uh, had been there before them. So uh, we go back a long way in this particular uh, part of the country. Yes. So I read you started out in your career as a newspaper reporter, and it struck me reading that resume and also just reading through these stories that you are a very observational storyteller. That's true. Um, and, you know, in some respects, that's kind of a curse as well as a blessing in that you're always watching <laughs> people from, from something of a remove. You know, there's always a sort of sense of uh, stepping back and taking note of things, um, which, you know, I guess it's the writer's curse is that that's, that's who you are, is that you're always experiencing an event and also recording that event mentally at the same time. You know? Yeah. You know, all of the stories, you know, they come from many different perspectives. They come from different ages and genders and backgrounds. Um, and yet I think they're all very authentic. Well, thank you. Uh, and isn't that uh, the fun of fiction writing? <laughs> is to think, you know, I, I, let me see if I can get into the mind of somebody who's so completely unlike me, you know, and inhabit this character for a while and, and uh, be a teenage boy for a while and be an old lady for a while and that kind of stuff. It's, it's really uh, part of what makes it a kind of a rewarding endeavor for me. Yes. Yes, you live many, there are many different lives in the, in the mind of, an, of a writer. <laughs> Rolling around in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so the story that we chose to feature today is about UFOs, but not really about UFOs. Could you set it up for us at all? Explain from your perspective what the story is about? Sure. Um, and this is one that actually did have a little bit of a a biographical uh, connection for me in that when I was a, a junior in a high school, uh, there was a, a rash of UFO sightings. It was just a flurry of, of news media activity and people would drive down to the lake and they would sit and watch all night waiting to see if they could see something. And so it was a big furor at the time. Um, I never saw anything myself, <laughs> so, so be it, I guess. But it was a big deal. And uh, when I was writing this story, which I didn't write this story until um, just right before the collection came out, actually. Um, and this had always just kind of been drifting along back there. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, okay, I'll pull that setting out, that, that situation out. But um, as you say, it's, it's not really about UFOs in so much as it is, partly it's about um, acceptance and coming to an understanding of, of your place in a community. And then also it's, it's a story about coming face to face with something that's completely inexplicable. 
that's kind of the weird thing about UFOs is that uh, what if they were real, you know, or what if you couldn't tell that they were real? How would you come to grips with that kind of knowledge of something totally outside the realm of your, your understanding? And how do people come to grips with that? Or how do they deal with, with that? It's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know how I would have dealt with it had such an experience ever befallen me. Yeah. Um, but it's really an interesting kind of thing to think about. Know, yes. so what, what if your whole uh, perspective on the universe was suddenly flipped? You know, um, you know that kind of a question is really intriguing. It is. Um, it's very intriguing. And I, I thought that um, one of the greatest parts of this story is there's a scene in the night in total darkness in a boat on a lake, and there's a conversation really about loneliness and human connection. Yeah, um, I think we've all, hopefully any or most of us have had this experience that in that being in the dark with somebody uh, suddenly kind of unlocks your your voice in a way. And Janine and, and another character are, are out on a boat and they're, they're really, they're kind of alone in the universe at that moment you know and the universe is surrounding them above and below and uh, they uh, they speak to each other on this kind of forbidden level of expressing the things that have that they're afraid of and the things that, that have that have happened to them um, that we we very rarely get to do and there's something about that moment that kind of frees a person up to to speak like that you know, which we, we very rarely have that opportunity. Yeah. No, and I think that through Janine, she comes in with an agenda, but then, you know, at the end, she sort of reveals this, these big feelings of, of not belonging. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one of the things about um, the countryside where I grew up, the Ozarks, is that they have a deep history. And I think Janine sort of penetrates down into that, that history. She comes to kind of understand that um, in her life as she's currently living it, um, she's missing out on something that these folks have, which is a kind of a deep sense of history and a rootedness that um, is very hard to capture these days. Most of us live kind of rootless lives nowadays. Even myself, um, I think Janine feels that way too in the story that uh, this is something she really can't capture except in a kind of secondhand way. And so um, there's a longing, uh, I think. Yes. For that. yes, that's the right word. There's a longing. When she's sitting on the porch at the very end of the story, there's a longing. Which is <laughs> beautifully captured. I just, I really love that. And I think that if anything from this last year, um, there's maybe an, a renewed appreciation for or longing for that kind of connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need each other a lot worse than we thought. You know, people, tell, you know, over and over again talk about how much they ache for their friends and their family. And, uh, that's the, the, the one thing they miss the most is just the ability to sit on a porch with somebody and you know, how, how powerful that need really is for us. Yeah, it's a great story for today, I think. Mm -hmm. Unexplained Aerial Phenomena. Janine had ended up teaching at Dower College by accident, more or less. She was from St. Louis and had never been to Springfield as far as she could remember. Her family oriented east, one set of grandparents in Baltimore, another set in Philly, and cousins all up and down the seaboard. Her schooling had followed the same path, and although she had never been as intellectual as some of her classmates, she had done well for herself. DePaul, then Ohio, and finally Pitt, None top tier, but all entirely respectable. 
But when it came time to hit the job market, her advisor reminded her that the harsh laws of supply and demand applied in the academic world as much as anywhere else, and that first jobs were not the place to get picky. The supply of sociologists, alas, outstripped demand by a considerable factor. So when she applied to Dower, she played the Missouri card as hard as she dared, and apparently it worked enough to get her an interview. After that, who knows? Somebody liked her. Maybe the other candidates were awful. Didn't matter. She had the job. The dean was a little fellow with an English degree from Arkansas and a sly way of implying that people weren't working hard enough, even during praise. And her department chair, Mr. Hardin, was a holdover from ancient days, with only a master's degree from Northeast Missouri State, which wasn't even Northeast Missouri State anymore. In her first month in Springfield, the chair had invited her for dinner at his home, where they labored at conversation over roast chicken. Mr. Hardin and his wife were pleasant people, wrapped up in college politics and their distant offspring. Janine delicately fished for clues about how to get ahead at Dower, but received only murmurs about collegiality and good evaluations. Mrs. Hardin offered to fix her up with some fine young men of her acquaintance, the nephews of friends and people from her church, but then stopped herself. Unless you're, uh... As a grad student, Janine might have enjoyed discomforting an oldster navigating the new intricacies of gender, but she was not a grad student any longer. And besides... She liked to think she would have better manners than that anyway. So she tapped Mrs. Hardin's arm and said, This year is all about establishing myself professionally. Next year, I'll turn to my love life. Mrs. Hardin looked relieved, and Mr. Hardin cleared his throat approvingly. Over the next few months, she settled into her apartment and job and looked for a research project. The dean could rhapsodize all day about the joys of working with undergraduates, but Janine knew that the path upward was paved with publications, lots of them, and in the best journals she could manage. There was only so much dissertation farming a person could do. Research something local, Mr. Hardin told her. We don't have funds to send you to Timbuktu. We're a teaching institution. Janine had written on theories of crowd behavior. She searched the local news for cases, mobs, hysterias, calamities, follies, and delusions. And there it was, a little town to the east, where everyone, or at least it seemed like everyone, had seen UFOs one summer a couple of years ago. Perfect. She spent a few weeks reading until she felt ready to drive out for a look on an October afternoon when she had no classes. Pine Hill looked like every other town she had seen during her time here. Aging, piss-pot poor, Trumpy beyond imagining. A core of Engineers Lake outside of town over which the mysterious lights had hovered. A Casey's and a Dollar General a hamburger place, a consolidated school district, a bank branch. In the bank branch would sit a branch manager, whose children would one day be sent to Dower College to be bleached of their small-town ideas and sent off to law school, and with any luck, they would return only for reunions and retirements. Janine found the newspaper office. The editor, a middle-aged man in a button-down shirt, studied her for a while before speaking, which left Janine acutely conscious of her out-of-place looks, her oversized black sweater with a showy scarf to look dressy, her exaggerated eyeglasses, her unkempt hair. Of course, outsiders would be resented. But what could she do? 
She was who she was. We're a pretty conservative town here, the editor finally said. Not like you folks in Springfield. The TV people came in and kind of had some fun with us. So don't be surprised if nobody wants to talk to you. I'm not a TV person. I'm a scholar. We had some of them, too. Didn't act much different, if you ask me. He consulted his computer and wrote an address on a slip of paper. Woodrow Bird lives out by the lake. He's the first one who saw them. He still talks to everybody. Other than that, he shrugged. This UFO thing is the first time Pine Hill's been in the news since the fireworks factory blew up. Nobody likes to be a laughingstock. Don't expect much cooperation. The joys of fieldwork. No wonder she had preferred theory in school. She typed the address into her map app. The highway heading east, then a squiggly line, then a squigglier line. Woodrow Bird sat on his front porch as Janine's car pulled into his circle drive, looking like the stereotype come to life. He looked to be about 75, square and solid as a cinder block, with gray hair cropped so closely that it might as well have been shaved. He wore a pair of Big Smith overalls that had been with him for quite a while. And, to complete the postcard, a dog sat beside him. He listened gravely as Janine introduced herself, then stood to shake hands. Janine, he said, that's a fine, old-fashioned name. It was my aunt's. That's a good tradition, not that anybody ever asked me. Family names are the best names, he sighed. So, you're here to talk about the flying saucers or whatnot. Yes. UAP. That's what they call them now. Unexplained aerial phenomena. Guess UFO had too much of a woo-woo sound for people. Anyway, come on in. Woodrow Bird's living room was tidy and minimal. Old pine flooring and rag rugs, with a freestanding wood stove near one wall and a couple of worn couches with thrown blankets tossed over their backs. He led her through it to a room behind, wide and narrow, with a wall of windows that looked out over the lake. This was my wife's sewing room before she passed away, he said. Since then, I've been using it as a catch-all. A jumble of fishing rods and tackle boxes stood by the back door. Against the inner wall were a couple of easy chairs, facing outward, with a round glass table between them. Woodrow gestured toward them, and they sat down. Here's where I sit of an evening, enjoying the sunset with my friend Jim. Jim? Beam, he chuckled at his well-worn joke. So here's where I sit, and on the evening in question, I was looking out over the lake like usual. And then here come this light from off that away. He pointed to his right. Whatever else might be said about Woodrow Bird's house, Janine had to admit it had a fine view. The shoreline was a hundred feet away, down a gentle slope, with no houses visible on either side. Across the lake, she could see the distant shapes of buildings. Woodrow followed her gaze. Everybody wants to live over on that side, to be close to the boat dock and the cafe, he said. Me, I figure if I wanted to clump up with people, I'd just stay in town. That makes sense. So, here comes this light, and I figure it for a helicopter because of how it moves. Then, I think, helicopters make a lot of noise, and I don't hear a thing. So, now, I'm guessing it's one of those drones people are flying nowadays. So I watch it, and it comes my way, getting bigger, and it's 
too big for a drone. Woodrow stood up, gesturing dramatically toward the lake. His story seemed over-rehearsed, but who was Janine to say? Even the rehearsed could be true. And then he took a beat. The light went down in the water. I could see it going down below the surface. How do you know? It must have been dark. Oh, it was dark, surely. But at a certain point, when a light is so far below the horizon, there's only one conclusion. Janine wasn't so sure, but she wasn't there to chase the story anyway. Her goal was to trace the information pathways, the ways in which the story spread, mutated, sank, and resurfaced. Its truth didn't matter, or at least didn't matter much. So then what happened? I watched for a while. Seemed like it was coming this direction, right into my cove. He pointed below them. Did the light get bigger as it drew close? She couldn't help herself. She wanted to hear the whole implausible tale. He gave her a glance out of the corner of his eye. Not as much as you might think. I believe it was either a running light or the craft went deeper as it got closer. Then... The light went out, just snap, like you flipped a switch. Then what did you do? Watched for a while to see if it come on again. When it didn't, I called my friends Lowell and Mike, and they came for a look. These are real people, not like my joke from earlier. Now she was getting somewhere. Janine drew two circles on her notepad and connected them to a circle in the middle. Woodrow, then Lowell and Mike. The network began. And then the TV people? Woodrow laughed. Nah, they came on their own. Lowell and Mike came out. And we poked around with our flashlights down at the shore. Couldn't see nothing. So that's when we called the sheriff's department to see if they knew anything. He shrugged. And then the fun began. Pretty crazy, was it? You could call it that. Channel 3, Channel 10, then the St. Louis stations, then the national shows. It was a nuthouse, especially after all those other people started reporting lights. Do you think they're telling the truth? I was telling the truth. Why wouldn't they be? He sat back down in his chair and looked out at the water. I tell you one thing, if I'd have known all the grief I was going to get for seeing it, I'd have kept my mouth shut. And to think, I always wanted to live near water. Janine found herself unexpectedly sympathetic to this man, whom she had imagined from the news stories to be some kind of boastful attention seeker. So the sheriff called the TV stations, or they picked it up on their scanners. I don't think so. It wasn't until the state trooper saw the lights a couple of nights later that the media people showed up. The afternoon slanted toward evening. The slope from the house to the lake was a patchwork of post oaks and cedars, filtering the light as the sun dropped over the water. At the edge of the yard, a home-built boat dock extended 20 feet into the lake, with a stubby bass boat tied up at the end of it. There'll be a fine sunset in another hour, Woodrow said. I can see why you moved out here. But of course, there was work to do. So she returned to her chart. Woodrow in the middle, then branches to his two friends and to the sheriff's office. A new circle. She labeled it media for now, with a question mark beside it and a dotted line to the sheriff. She rifled through her notes. I read a news report about that trooper, but he seems to have dropped out of the scene pretty quickly. Yeah. Woodrow heaved himself to his feet and walked to the living room door. They shut him up in a hurry, 
said he was bringing discredit to the force. He stepped inside the living room, returning in a moment with a large three-ring binder. I kept a scrapbook, if you want to look at it. Of course, Janine took it from his hands, page after plastic-sheathed page of clippings, photographs, web page printouts. This would save her hours of work. Could I borrow this for a few days? Don't see why not. As long as you bring it back, I only look at it now and then. I promise. A week to photocopy, cross-reference, and map, and she'd have her rumor transmission model all set. Apply some theory, and boom. Conference paper, journal article, book chapter. You look like I just handed you the scripture. Mr. Bird, you have no idea. Nobody indexes these little publications, and it would take me ages to run down all these stories, their dates, who's quoted, who spoke to whom. She made a helpless gesture. This scrapbook solves most of that problem. Is it up to date? Woodrow shrugged. Pretty much. Maybe not the last few months. Janine imagined this man, hunched over his newspaper with scissors and rubber cement, printing off news stories from television websites on his $50 inkjet, memorializing this one great anomaly in his life. I'll take good care of this. She flipped another few pages, and a photo caught her eye. Woodrow and someone else in these very chairs. Is that William Shatner? That's him, all right. He was only here for half an hour, just long enough to tape his introduction. Some kind of unexplained mysteries show. Nice fellow. Very pleasant. Janine sat in William Shatner's chair and pondered the strangeness of it all. A small town, a quiet lake, and then a year's worth of media madness and celebrity. And now, obscurity, in the wake of that upheaval. Scrapbooks and where-are-they-now articles. She stood up. I've taken enough of your time, she said. Can I bring this back in a couple of weeks? Woodrow walked her to her car. I'll tell you another thing, he said, pointing to the scrapbook on the seat beside her. If you're looking for the truth about those lights, you won't find it in there. The story matters as much to me as the facts. How it spreads, what kind of needs it meets. Seeing his skeptical look, she added, Every story fills a need. Why does a station run a story about mysterious lights in the air above Pine Hill instead of a story about something else? That's what I'm curious about. Woodrow seemed unconvinced. Well, if you ever decide you want to get closer to the truth, let me know. And as she put her car in drive, he added casually as he turned toward his house. I still see them pretty regular. Back at Dower College, Janine's semester foundered. Students openly checked their phones during class, wandered in and out of the room, turned in sloppy or plagiarized assignments. First semester shakedown cruise, Mr. Hardin said. Don't worry about it. But the dean furiously scribbled notes during his visit and emailed her articles on classroom management. Mr. Hardin chuckled as she described her research. I remember that business. Biggest thing to happen in Pine Hill since... Since the fireworks plant exploded. Pretty much. Anyway, talk to psychology and communication. Maybe we can put together a symposium. Think your source might be willing to appear on a panel? Suddenly, Janine felt protective of Woodrow Bird and his eccentric scrapbook. Her research was one thing, but a public event with random curiosity seekers and equally random but incurious students seemed invasive and inappropriate. I don't know. I think he's been burned before. Can't hurt to ask, he said, and Janine took that as an instruction. 
But first, she needed to think. She mapped out Woodrow's scrapbook, the spread of stories from local to regional to national, the details left out or blurred along the way, the transformation into familiar tropes. Just as Woodrow had said, a highway patrolman reported the lights three days after Woodrow, only to waffle and then grow silent a few days later, when the TV crews appeared. Woodrow's parting words echoed in her mind. He hadn't sounded like he was joking, but the news stories never mentioned any such claim. And why tell her, of all people? She called him one evening, under the pretext of setting a day to return his scrapbook. But her question could not be restrained. Woodrow, when I was leaving, you told me that you still saw these UFOs. UAPs. Right, UAPs. Were you just teasing me, or was that the truth? Miss, do I look like a chronic liar to you? No. There you go, then. Come on out if you want to try to see them, too. Tuesday nights are the best. I only see them at night. And for some reason, they like Tuesdays. Dress warm, because we have to go out on the lake. Janine drove out to Pine Hill the following Tuesday with a mild sense of apprehension. She didn't particularly like the outdoors, although she enjoyed a walk in the park once in a while. But a boat, on a lake, even on a calm fall day, such as this one, fell outside her comfort range. Two pickup trucks were already parked in Woodrow's driveway when she pulled in, and two more old men standing in the yard. Welcome to the Senior Center Boys Club, Woodrow said. This is Lowell and Mike. Lowell was a tall man, only slightly stooped, with a shiny head of silver hair that he combed straight back, the kind of man who would have been thought handsome in an earlier day, and he still had the air of someone who took care with his appearance. Mike was bald, short, and chunky, with a gray goatee and a checkered fleece coat spotted with oil stains. So, he's roped you into this shit now, has he? Mike said. Janine didn't know what to say in response, so she simply followed them into the house in silence. Woodrow had spread out a map of the lake on his kitchen table. He placed the salt shaker on a spot midway up the eastern shore. Here's us. What I've seen, the things seem to like to come and go from this cove just to our north, around the point. He traced the path with his finger. The things, Lowell said. The little green men, said Mike. Woodrow looked across the table at Janine. You see why I never went back to the news people. Even my own friends give me shit. Ah, we love you, Woodrow, Mike said. We're here to help you welcome our new alien masters. Woodrow did not take the bait. This bluff along here is the old jumping-off bluff. Before they built the lake, it was a deep hole of water where the kids would prove their courage by how far up they would climb before they jumped. Deepest place in the lake, except up by the dam. Lowell wouldn't know about that, Mike added. He's a newcomer. Fifteen years, said Lowell. You're a newcomer until you have two generations in the cemetery, Mike replied. Focus, boys, Woodrow said. We need to get in motion. Here's what we'll do. Mike and I will take one boat and ride out to the far end of the bluff, drop anchor, and wait. Lowell and Janine, you'll take Lowell's boat and go to the near side, just past the point. If we see anything, we'll take pictures and hopefully catch it from two angles. If we haven't seen something by nine, we come back and make toddies. You're just a regular General Patton, aren't you? said Mike. Woodrow didn't answer. 
but led them to a large Rubbermaid storage box just outside the back door. He pulled out four life jackets and handed them around. We're not taking any chances out there. No arguments. No one argued as they walked to the boat dock where a second boat was tied, a little cruiser with some storage space and a windshield. Mike poked her in the ribs. Lucky girl, you get the good one. Woodrow and me are going to freeze our asses off in that bass boat. So why are you coming? She asked him. Are you kidding? I wouldn't miss this for the world. Lowell climbed into his boat and helped her in. They let the other two pull away first, then cast off their ropes and followed into the growing darkness. Woodrow's dock light disappeared as they rounded the headland toward the jumping-off bluff, leaving only the distant glow of the marina settlement across the lake to their left and the receding glimmer of Woodrow's running light ahead of them as signs of human presence. Lowell proceeded at an idle, the boat motor rumbling beneath their deck. Is this safe? Janine asked. Lowell pondered. Yes, and no, he said after a while. Calm night, nobody else on the lake, and if somebody comes toward us, we'll see them a mile away. On the other hand, we're on a lake in the dark. It's cold. There could be floating debris. And if you fall in, I'm not sure I could pull you back over the side by myself. If Lowell had further thoughts, he didn't add them. The boat putted along until it reached what Janine could only assume was the predetermined spot, where he cut the motor and tossed out a small anchor. I'm not much of a conversationalist, he said. Mike knows how to keep up a patter, but I don't. I'm sorry about that. That's all right, said Janine. They settled into the silence as the sound of Woodrow's boat faded. The slightest of breezes chilled her cheeks. She cinched the life jacket tighter over her coat and pulled her knit hat over her ears. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, more and more stars appeared. Stars upon stars, spilling across the sky as if from a knocked-over bucket. That's something I never saw in St. Louis, she murmured. Lowell chuckled. That's the very thing I said my first night here. You're from St. Louis, too? She fought back the impulse to ask what high school he had gone to. Yes, ma'am. Born and raised. Lived and worked. Bought a cabin down here, which is how I got the idea to retire here after my working days were over. I wanted the peace and quiet. I know, that's a cliché, but 30 years at the GM plant is an education in the value of peace and quiet. He drummed his fingers lightly on the steering wheel of the cruiser. And the loneliness. Now, that's part's crazy, but after all those years of work, and the neighborhood, and the church, and the kids and grandkids... I wanted to get used to the feeling of being alone. I figured either me or my wife would need to practice the skill of living on our own. It takes practice, you know. The surface of the lake rippled ever so slightly as the breeze picked up. Turns out it was me. Janine wanted to ask more, but held back. The moment seemed delicate, and she didn't want to delve any farther into Lowell's thoughts than he was willing to go on his own. She thought of her own loneliness, which felt so intense these days. The loneliness of being in a new place with uncertain expectations and doubt as to whether she could meet them. How pale, how puny, her loneliness was compared to his. For as painful as it was, somewhere inside, she had faith that it would someday be 
relieved, but Lowell's certainty was the precise opposite, and she had a hard time imagining how it could be born. Grand Valley, Lowell said. What? That's what they called this place before the lake was built. You can see the old photos down at the Historical Society. There was a little settlement, maybe a dozen houses, with a school and a church and a cemetery. The Corps relocated the graveyard, but everything else... He gestured out over the water. You don't think that had something to do with... Lowell scoffed. I'm a silly old man, miss, but I don't amuse myself with ghost stories. I'll leave the theories to Woodrow. Janine didn't answer. The conversation disoriented her. Here they sat, rocking gently on the ink-black water with the speckled sky above, and she felt overcome by an eerie sensation that they were not merely floating on a lake but floating in space, untethered and beyond all reach. What was she to make of all these things? Drowned villages and flying saucers. Lowell's phone screen glowed green in his shirt pocket. He took it out and studied the message. Woodrow thinks he saw something, he said. Only, it's not up in the sky. It's under the water. What's that supposed to mean? Heck if I know. He just said, it's moving along the lake bed. They each looked over their side of the boat, Lowell on the left, Janine on the right. But she saw only scattered glints on the surface, the random noise of the universe, returning nothing meaningful to her gaze beyond the darting glimmers of starlight. But then she saw it, and from his grunt, she knew that Lowell saw it too. Ahead, deep under the water, a green glow moved toward them with the speed of a fish, but steadily and on a straight line. It was too deep to make out clearly. A running light, an emanation, a ghost train. Who could know? It passed under their craft without so much as a ripple, and they scrambled to the stern to see if it came into view again. And in a moment, it appeared, receding at the same swift and steady pace, until in the middle distance, it vanished, as if suddenly switched off, just as Woodrow had said. The whole event happened so fast that Janine doubted herself for a moment. But of course... She couldn't doubt it. She'd seen it, as plain as the nose on your face, as her mother used to say. Or as plain as an underwater glow could ever be. Don't guess you took a picture with your phone, Lowell said. An absurd question, for no picture she could have taken would have looked like anything other than a smudge. Janine didn't answer and Lowell appeared to recognize that too, for he didn't repeat it. After a few minutes, he started the engine and winched up the anchor. Might as well head in. I think we've seen our last out here. He steered the boat in at a near idle, watchful over his headlight for floating logs, until they reached Woodrow's dock. They could hear the putt-putt of the bass boat in the distance behind them and see its light. Janine paused on the dock, but Lowell headed toward the house. It'll take them another five minutes to get here. Let's warm up. She followed him up the slope. Inside, Lowell took four tumblers out of a cabinet and placed them on the counter. He poured a half inch of Jim Beam into each and dropped in two cubes of ice. Two of the tumblers went into Woodrow's freezer compartment. He placed one on the table beside Janine and took the other for himself. I should have asked you if you wanted one, he said. It's kind of our tradition after an outing. Oh, I want one. In truth, she wasn't much for hard liquor, 
not since freshman year, anyway. But tonight, the sour heat of the whiskey was what she needed. She held each sip in her mouth for a moment before swallowing. The other two arrived soon and joined them in the back room with their drinks, looking out into the night toward the lake. What are we going to call it? Mike blurted. I'm thinking the Grand Valley Light, cause it was right over where the old village was. You've got to be kidding, Lowell said. What? You didn't see it? Of course we saw it. Damnedest thing, too. But I'm not going out and giving it a name. People already have us halfway to the mental home, and I'd just as soon not complete the trip. Mike turned to Woodrow. That what you think? You were as excited as I was. Woodrow shrugged, uncomfortable. I would have liked to get a better look. Maybe a picture. Tell you what, Lowell said. Let's each go home and write down what we saw, best as we can remember. Then tomorrow, we'll meet at the coffee shop and compare. We'll see if we have anything to go on. All nodded, and they turned to Janine. Can you join us? Woodrow asked. The whiskey had settled into Janine's cheeks. She was enjoying its warmth and didn't particularly feel like talking. No, I have class in the morning. Oh, right, Woodrow said. A working person is among us. Within a few minutes, Mike and Lowell had excused themselves with promises of the morning meeting and warm farewells to Janine. She shook Lowell's hand particularly firmly, for he had revealed things about himself out on the lake that she suspected he hadn't even told his friends. But she didn't join their exodus to the driveway. She had a finger's width of Jim Beam left in her glass, and she wasn't ready to leave quite yet. She swirled the ice cubes in her glass as Woodrow returned to his chair. What do you think? He said. I'm processing. Of course, the three of them could be playing an elaborate joke on her, to be revealed at some later date when they all needed a laugh, or perhaps never. Or perhaps someone was playing a joke on them all, like those crop circle people of years ago who bamboozled half a Briton with little more than some simple tools and the people's will to believe. And she knew the literature on mass hysteria. But what if she had seen what it had seemed to be, and she had glimpsed the incomprehensible? What was she to make of that? Janine did not feel equipped for this thought. She imagined stepping in front of her Introduction to Sociology class tomorrow and telling them that she had seen the unexplained aerial phenomenon, or aquatic phenomenon, in this instance. Their concealed expressions, their sideways glances, and word would get back to Mr. Harden, naturally, and then she'd be an official crazy lady the faculty member who went out into the hills and came back spouting nonsense. She glanced at Woodrow, who was studying her. This is quite a challenge, she said. Now that's some fine Ozark understatement. You'll be one of us yet. I thought it took two generations in the cemetery. We'll make an exception in your case. That's all right. I don't think I fit in here. Oh, you fit in just fine. She appreciated his words, even as she doubted them. Hers was the generation of rootless professionals who never fit in anywhere, nor needed to fit in, for whom geography was an antique concept, chasing their resumes from Springfield to San Francisco to God knows where. Long-forgotten children, jumping off long-lost bluffs into long-gone swimming holes. It was hard to see where someone like her would fit in such a landscape. So, what did we just see? She said. 
I don't know, said Woodrow, but I reckon we just saw the backside of it, whatever it was. And maybe it's best just to see the backside instead of looking face to face, like Moses in the cleft of the rock. Maybe so. And who knows, perhaps she was like Moses sitting here, unaware that her face was shining until her frightened countrymen called out to her. And although she knew it was time to go, she lingered, fitting in for just a little while, sitting in William Shatner's chair, while deer rustled in the obscurity outside. Well, as a storyteller, the thing that to me is, is most essential is empathy, uh, compassion, and kindness, and carrying those uh, values into a story is really what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, you know, some, some of the stories look very harshly at, at some characters, or characters present themselves in a very unfavorable light. But what I'm hoping is that through reading all of them together, people get a sense that, um, you know, human beings are deserving of that, uh, of a little bit of consideration and kindness, no matter how rotten they may behave at, at some time. And there's, I hope anyway, some sense of reaching people on a, on a universal level, on a basic level. Yes, and empathy, really. If we, yeah. could, if we could just all have bigger doses of empathy, think of everything societally that we could, we could impact with just that, just, yeah. just a big cup of empathy. Yeah. And just trying to understand what somebody else is going through that's at any, any one time would be a, a huge accomplishment, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, um, for giving me the time and giving me your perspective. I just, I really loved the stories. Um, thank you. Thank I just you. really enjoyed them and I'm excited to share them. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Teresa. Yeah. All right. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Take right. care. Bye-bye. You can find all of Steve's books on his website and also stay connected to him through his blog. I'll put the link in the show notes. And I'll put a wonderful picture he shared of his grandparents under an elm tree in the Ozarks on the Desideratum Facebook page. Thanks for listening.